One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. We think about giving, we think about generosity in the church. I know it's my often inclination to give and to be generous as I feel comfortable. And this is certainly not a time where what's going on in life and in our world where we feel financially comfortable. I think we all probably would agree with that. But this is a, a time for us all, and I'm hit by this passage this week myself, to consider, you know, how, how do I steward what God's given to me? In fear, do I shrink back and try to self-protect? Or do I trust that God will take care of me, that he's in control, and that if I give generously to the needs of others and to his church, that not only will he bless that, but he won't abandon me in that. So as you consider giving this morning, there's a couple different ways you can give on the screen, but again, more important than the ways you give, just want us all to consider as I am considering how much I'm trusting the Lord with my finances versus how much I'm trying to control and manage the fears and the concerns of this world on my own. All right, would you pray with me? Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider just the backdrop of life and where we are personally, where we are as a church, where our world is, Father, that you would encourage our hearts through your word this morning, that we would be moved towards confession and repentance where we need to confess and repent, that you would lift up our heads where we've been discouraged, anxious, or fearful. God, that we would experience you in word and in worship this morning in, in a way that I know all of us really just need today. We love you and we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather as your people together in this place. And we are eagerly anticipating what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to speak to us today. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. All right, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read the passage for this morning. And it's a long one, so you're going to get to stretch those legs for a little bit. If you look with me on the screen, we're doing two chapters of Ecclesiastes today. So I, I was the lucky one that somehow got this slot when we planned out all of the passages. So this is Ecclesiastes 8, starting with verse 1 and into the end of chapter 9. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not go well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. 
I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they will have no more shame in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When someone asks you about yourself, a stranger you meet, or even a friend is kind of catching up with you, probably the first thing you talk about is your occupation. It's what you do for work. I think, and on average, as adults, if you don't know this, we spend at least half of our waking hours at work, doing work. And that's kind of a, a more kind of conservative estimate, assuming that you never work after hours, which I'm sure none of you ever have to do, and that none of you ever work on weekends or anything like that, which again, I'm sure none of us ever in that situation. Work is a pretty significant part of our lives, and it can be difficult. It's the source of many of the prayer requests that we receive as pastors about just frustrations with a boss or worries about finances or what the future holds, or whether it's a burden about understaffed teams with too much work to do and, and not enough people to do it. It causes a lot of stress in our lives, but we obviously need it to survive. We need it to provide for ourselves. And I know you feel it because they have, we have a lot of small business owners at Story Church that have to deal with managing organizations and budgets and staffing and, and all the complexities there. We have teachers that barely made it to spring break that either got sick, like I know some of you did, or just kind of crawled to that finish line so that you could get some time off. And we have a lot of firefighters at this church medical professionals and other frontline workers that, especially these last couple of years, have really struggled with just insane hours, way too much work to do, and not enough people to do it. But why is this the case? Why is it that work is so difficult? Well, there's a lot of practical reasons about what's going on in our world, but ultimately it's, it's because of sin. It's because of the fall. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve disobeyed, God pronounced curses. And one of the curses is that it was on the ground itself, that man would have to toil in work to provide, that work would no longer be something that brought joy and harmony, 
because God's initial design was for Adam and Eve to take care of the garden, to name the animals, and to, to steward what he made. And it was supposed to be a beautiful and joyful thing, but because of sin, that's not how life works any longer. But even more than toiling at work, the worst curse of all that sin brought was death, which looms before all of us. That as we toil and work and deal with stress, all of that just to survive, we have this looming thing at the end of the finish line, death, that we worry about and we're concerned about. The life brings about this experience of life with all that in mind. It, it brings a lot of stress, pain, tears, sweat, sleepless nights. How do you deal with that? Well, this is just one tangible example when you think of work, of just what life in a broken world looks like. In a world where things often don't go our way and we can't plan or predict or control the way that life goes. Well, in Ecclesiastes chapters eight and nine, we're gonna find that in a world where almost everything is outside our control, wisdom will teach us to fear God and to actually enjoy life. Chapter eight is gonna show us and talk to us really about how to deal with fear and control. And chapter nine will focus more on death and contentment. So two sections this morning. The first section is fear and control, and the second section is death and contentment. Really cheery passage this morning, right? I, I, we gotta preach it. This is what's in God's word, so this is what we're gonna tackle, and I get a sense that this is what we need to hear right now with, with a lot of what I know we're going through individually and as a church. Okay, so our first section, chapter eight, is titled Fear and Control. And our, our passage opens with this kind of chunk of advice on how to deal with one of the most common issues that we have as people, which is dealing with earthly leaders. And it gives some simple wisdom. I'll just kind of go through. Obey the king. Don't be disloyal. Don't defend injustice. And then obedience and integrity are always better. And I love these things because God's wisdom is always timeless. It's not based on what time you live in, what era or age you're in, what kind of government that you have over you. It's just wisdom. It's good stuff for us to pay attention to. But this isn't where the passage is going. We're not going to camp out on politics or civic duty or anything like that. But the reason it starts this way is because we're going to talk about control. And powers, earthly powers, are a reminder that we're not in control. In verse 6, we see that the preacher addresses this reality. Our world's troubles are a heavy burden to us. He goes on to say that we don't know what is going to happen next in life, that no one has power over life or death, and then the kind of specific and odd phrase that there's really no escape from war. I know you feel that. I mean, no one could have predicted COVID would hit in 2020, and just the insane amount of fallout, relational, relationally, financially, culturally, politically, I mean, so many things. No one could have predicted that. And no one would have thought that this war in Ukraine would be happening right now, and that we'd be seeing children's hospitals bombed and maternity wards being destroyed. I mean, it's just, it's insane. And just when you thought you got a break from darkness, when COVID was ending and things are opening up, there's just another thing that happens that reminds us that darkness is in this world, that we're not in control. Our desire for control and power, it's a problem. And it's really damaging because it doesn't work. As soon as we think that we've achieved it, as soon as we try, something else comes and reminds us that we're not in control, whether it's world events or personal events in your own life. And as a result, it leads us into all kinds of anxiety and fear. And I want to talk about just a couple examples that are kind of the most predominant because this is bigger than the feeling of anxiety, of butterflies or nervousness. The most common anxiety is something that you're familiar with that you probably wouldn't call an anxiety, but it's called the normalcy bias in psychological terms or keeping up with the Joneses. 
Dr. Kevin L. Chapman, or L. Kevin Chapman, says, says this about it. The common thread in those of us who succumb to normalcy bias is attempting to live above our means, trying to keep up with others who appear more successful, that money is the key to happiness, and that I will be accepted if I have more things. We are excessively concerned about the views of others and our being. Without a shadow of a doubt, Westerners are conditioned to equate things with success. Unfortunately, when we're unable to obtain things based on environmental expectations, the media, and what others tell us, we often feel empty, anxious, and insecure. In other words, we're caught up in this comparison game of what we should have, what our lives should look like, what kind of home we own, rent, or don't have, and really what we look like compared to others on social media or otherwise. And we're, we're so concerned about the car we drive, the clothes we wear, and, and just how other people might perceive us. And in the end, this just leads us into a place of emptiness, anxiousness, and insecurity. Because whether you attain those things or not, it doesn't solve what's going on inside you. Someone, either someone has more than you, and you realize there's a new finish line, there's a new goal, or you don't get those things you, you were pursuing and achieving and looking for, and then you feel discouraged. Okay, another common anxiety, we're just gonna do two, the second one here, is called achievement motivation. Look at me on the screen. The need for achievement can be construed as a social need that directs people to strive for success and excellence, accomplishment and influence. No one could argue against the notion that most Americans are conditioned to be very high in achievement motivation, with many of us learning over time that achievement equals happiness. The biggest issue is that many of us place our favorite teams, careers, family expectations, and abilities as the most important parts of our identities. We conjure up an image of your favorite collegiate athlete who lost the big game and the grimacing pain on his or her face as if a loved one were unexpectedly taken from the earth and cast into eternal damnation. When these individualistic factors are inconsistent with our reality, the cycle of anxiety is often perpetuated, causing us to react as if we are in a dangerous situation when we are in fact not. I mean, it just gives us that example of athletes. I mean, I saw, I, saw, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter recently, but um, there, there's a, a game, I forget what it was, some NCAA game, and there's just all this footage of ev all of the fans just crying because their team didn't make March Madness. And there's all these images of people in the band, you know, playing their instruments with tears rolling down. I mean, people are losing their minds because their college team didn't make the didn't make the championship. And when you see kind of footage like that, they tr tr people are truly behaving as though someone died, as though some traumatic event happened when it's, it's often much more trivial than that. But, you know, again, it's not just the athletes or the fans. We all kind of do this. My favorite example of this is I'm just going to throw my father-in-law under the bus. Um, the Cowboys often lose on Thanksgiving. And by often, I mean virtually every year I've ever watched the Cowboys play with my in-laws, they have lost on Thanksgiving. And every single time, the day starts on a high note and he gets the smoker going and we're excited about dinner. And then the Cowboys lose and there's this emotional downward spiral. And then it's the rest of the family's job to kind of salvage the situation. Usually we end up just making fun of the Cowboys during dinner anyway, which doesn't really help. But truly, our, our Western culture motivates us with this idea of achievement, whether it's our own and goals we have, or we've emotionally attached ourselves to the success of other people, whether it's friends, family, or athletes even. Our emotions are caught up in the end results in life. We try so hard to control our lives and to achieve those results. And we are unreasonably discouraged 
when we lose our sense of control, when things don't go our way. And again, sometimes it's as silly as a game, but often it's not very silly. It's when life is painful or when something doesn't seem fair. It's not just when the other team wins, it's when it feels like evil people win, our enemies win, or darkness is winning out. In verse nine, the preacher says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man has power over man to his hurt. This is this idea that injustice and pain, they're inescapable, that there is a brokenness that is woven into the fabric of our world, that people who have power over other people, it causes hurt, it causes damage. And it sometimes even seems like they're being rewarded for it. And I really like how the New Living Translation phrases verse 11. It says this, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. How true is that? We see injustice, we see brokenness, and we want it dealt with. And we wonder why do these things happen? Well, this is why. Because evil and injustice are not dealt with in the timing and in the way that we would like them to be. It may look like evil people get away with or even are rewarded for wickedness and evil. But verse 11 says that the wise ones who fear God, they'll actually be better off. So the key that it's, it's the, 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 the way that God wants us to, to see this is that patience is what we need to focus on because we want instant results. We want, we want to be rewarded for our work and we want injustice and evil dealt with. But God has a different plan and his timing is often very different from our timing. Wisdom tells us to play the long game. Verse 13 says, It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Justice will come for the wicked. And while it seems like the most influential and rich and successful people often are also some of the most evil, and they seem to just go about their days without anything happening to them, ultimately, that it will not go well for them. That those who are wise and fear God They will be blessed and God will take care of them. Verse 14 speaks pretty plainly that righteous people seem to struggle and wicked people get rewarded. And this seems redundant because he just said that and I just said that. I mean, it kind of just hits the same point multiple times, but that's the point. This reality that we we see where it's it's, it's really clashing with our expectations. We think good people should be rewarded and honest people should be rewarded and people who are false and evil and have bad intentions, that they should be punished. It should go poorly for them. Our expectations are out of whack because we believe the world is supposed to work in a way that it just doesn't. And if you're here last week, you heard Pastor Chris Lewis from Foothill Church preach an incredible message and hit this pretty hard. Now, let's listen to the wisdom of the preacher here who says he's applied his pursuit of knowledge, his study of how the world works to this exact thing. So look with me on the screen, starting in verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, And to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night nor one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But there is so much we want to know about what God is doing and how things work. And as much as we try, as much as he tried, we cannot know it. We cannot find it out. I think all of us are control freaks. You all know someone who you think is actually a control freak and seems really neurotic about it, but all of us are control freaks. We want life our way. We compare ourselves to others. We feel like we have to measure up. But even more than that, we're constantly making plans for the future. 
We're trying to project what's gonna happen. We're trying to anticipate problems and fear and, and position ourselves to minimize it. And then we're trying to set, we set goals for ourselves and we try to achieve various things in this life. And when it doesn't go our way, again, it doesn't go the way we planned, we're devastated because we're hit with that reality that we're not actually in control. And as much as we, hit, we experience that so many times, we just keep getting on that horse and trying to, to plan and control our lives again and again, and we get knocked back down. James 4, 13 through 16 says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So I read this in my devotional time this week and, you know, I felt personally, I just felt really convicted because I make a lot of plans. I strategize. I look to the future. I, I like to do that. I don't fly by the seat of my pants. And I don't think of that as a boastful thing, as an arrogant thing. But as I read this passage, I realized that often my motivation in planning, my motivation in looking to the future, it's not with this open-handed submission to what God wants. I think I know what I need or what's good. And I'm making plans and working toward those things. I'm putting contingencies in place to avoid pain and to deal with what's going on in our world. And I know that you guys feel this as well because, you know, I'm sure it's not just me, that's me and my wife that have felt the gas prices and inflation and the cost of food and all that's going on right now. This is the general increased cost of living that's happened in Southern California in recent years and always, but, you know, in recent years. It's hit our family. It's been hard going back to the budget and starting to slash some things and figure out how we're gonna, how we're gonna adjust to what's going on. And it's frustrating, it's scary, and it makes me feel more vulnerable than I'm used to feeling and certainly more vulnerable than I try to control my life in such a way that I don't feel. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we believe sometimes that God wants what we want or, or maybe even more specifically that our desire is what we want, that that's just what God wants too. So we make these plans. We assume that the income is going to stay the same, that we'll have the same jobs, that there won't be issues in our relationships, that our health is going to be stable, that the health of people we love is going to be stable. We make all these assumptions that life is going to be okay and that the things that, that we want, the things that we are pursuing, that that's going to happen. We're going to get those things because we're Christians. We follow God, right? But we can't control our health. And the passage here says we don't, you know, we don't know the number of our days. The problem of control and anxiety that the preacher addresses here, it applies to all of us, whether you consider yourself a control freak or not, because we all struggle to accept that at our core, we are weak, vulnerable people who are not in control of pretty much anything that's going on in our lives. And James gives us the answer here. Rather than trying to know the future, plan for the future, and, and control the present, he says that we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Because the true good life, friends, will only be had by those who love and fear God. That's what the passage here in Ecclesiastes says. It's not those who try to prolong their life, who try to manage it. They, they will not experience true and fullness of life. It will not go well for them. So I think the question is, what are you more afraid of? Are you afraid of the earthly powers around you, whether it's in our country or it's in your workplace or it's in our world? 
Or do you fear the God of this universe who made everything? No matter how hard you try, you can't know the future and you can't plan your life and execute it the way that you want. Fear of this world leads us to chasing control and only finding anxiety at the end of that pursuit. So do you want anxiety or do you want peace? When you loosen your grip on life and you choose to fear God rather than fearing the things of this world, you will have peace. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Wise people choose patience over control and they choose the fear of God over the fear of man. See, when we accept that God is God and that we're not, there is great freedom from the rat race in your job, from the comparison game on social media, and from the empty and impossible pursuit of chasing comfort and control. Wise people choose to be patient, trusting in God's long-term plans more than in your own plans. And rather than living in fear of this world and what may happen and what's going on in Ukraine and where the U.S. government is going and what's going to happen at work with, with all the changes, we choose to fear the God of the universe who created it all, who loves us and who is in control. Our next section is titled Death and Contentment. In chapter 9, verse 1, the preacher says that the righteous and the wise are both in God's hands and that whether God loves or hates them, man does not know. And he's not saying that we should be in fear of whether God loves you or hates you at any particular moment, as though this is some sort of you know, scale that changes based on your behavior. Instead, what the passage is getting at is that when you look at someone's life and you look at what's going on around them, you can't tell if they have favor with God, if they're a believer, or if they're not a believer and they do not have favor with God based on what's going on in their life. Good things aren't happening to God's children and bad things happening to people who reject God. It's kind of a mixed bag, if we're honest. It, it, things are happening to everyone. But what does that mean? Well, let's look at verses two and three. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So it's the same for everyone in this life. Righteous and wicked, good and evil, people who keep promises, people who break promises, religious people and irreligious people. There is an evil that is over all of us. What is that evil? Death. The preacher goes on to say that it's, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. In other words, that it's better to be alive in a, in a more humble position than it is to be dead in a prideful or high position. Because death ultimately destroys anything and it doesn't matter. Verses five and six say that the dead know nothing, that they have no reward, that their memory is gone, and that everything under the sun is no longer theirs to share. There's a finality to death that looms in front of us all. It's the great thief of joy in life, in this world. It's a reminder that everything on this earth, everything we do, everything we strive after can disappear in a moment. That a simple text message can just blow up your world. You know, a few months after my dad officiated Allison and I's wedding in 2014, I got a phone call. Something was wrong. 
They didn't know what it was. His blood was off. His, his skin kind of had a weird color. He was really tired all the time. And they did some blood tests, and we were hoping it was going to be like a, a B12 deficiency or they're going to be able to kind of just give some supplements or something. But after a bit of time, the news came that it was cancer. And what followed for my wife and I was year, a year almost to the date of just flights, hospital visits, phone calls with the doctor discussing what's going on and trying to decipher these PDFs of all the different test results. And then one night in 2015, he took a turn for the worse, and the doctors called and said that I needed to get there as soon as possible. So we booked the next flight out and tried to get a couple hours of sleep, and then I woke up in the morning with all my stuff packed, ready to go, and looked at my phone and saw the text. Your dad didn't make it. Now, I can't really get into the toll that the weeks and the months of that following took on me. I mean, I, I wept. I didn't sleep. I felt hollow. I gained a bunch of weight. I struggled to experience joy. But with, with some time and some counsel, I was able to grieve, and I experienced some healing. But the pain of that death, it didn't go away. It's not, I and mean, you can see it, it's not gone. It's, it's, not, it's not fixed with time. It's been years now, it's 2015. I don't experience the un, uncontrollable emotions or being triggered by memories and feel vulnerable in the way that I did, but his death still hurts. And the fact that it's final, that there's nothing I can do about it, it's just as harsh and it's just as fresh for me in those moments when I think about it deeply. And here's the thing, my dad was a pastor. He was a kind husband. He was a good father. He shared the gospel much to a way that embarrassed me as a child with basically everyone he met in the grocery store and even including the person bagging the groceries who really doesn't want to talk to you and just kind of wants you to leave. Why him? Why a 54-year-old pastor that seemed to be in perfect health, why would he get leukemia and die? Senior pastor of a church with a couple kids and in a, in a season of life where he's thriving and his church is thriving. We look at these words in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and it talks about this reality that what's going, what happens to people doesn't seem to really match who they are or what favor they have before God, that, that this, this evil of death, it happens equally to the just and to the unjust. I feel that. I felt that personally. It was really hard with me to reconcile, and ultimately, like the passage says, it's in God's hands, and we don't know why, why he allows what he does to whom and in the timing that he does. So what do we do with that? What do we do with death? whether it's the death of a loved one that you care for, or it's maybe your own death that, that it frightens you, your own health, or just concern for, with your own mortality. What would the world tell you to do? Well, the world tells you to extract as much pleasure, entertainment, power, and enjoyment out of life because just do it while it lasts. You don't know how long it'll be, so indulge yourself, treat yourself. Why not? None of it matters anyway. Life is meaningless, and so might as well live as long as you can and have as much fun and enjoyment as you, as you can while you are alive. If you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, the writer tells us how this is all vanity. He did that. He went and got married to tons and tons of people, had all these concubines and conquered so much and built so much and acquired more wealth than anyone else, and it didn't matter. He wasn't satisfied. It wasn't good enough for him. The more you have, the more you feel empty. The more pleasure you experience, if you, those of you who, who've ever struggled with addiction know, the more pleasure you experience, the less that pleasure actually does anything for you. And you have to keep chasing something bigger and something more intense to satiate yourself. And we've seen this morning, as the passage says, that those who try to do this, those who try to extend their life and maximize their experience out of this world, it doesn't go well for them. 
they can't actually do it. So with these big questions of life and death in mind, how should we as Christians think about life? How should we approach it? Well, I skipped, I skipped verse 15 in chapter 8 because the end of our portion in chapter 9, really these two passages go together. And so I'm going to read these together and we're going to talk about how in the world we're supposed to deal with all this really discouraging reality that we are looking at. So look with me at the screen, starting in 8.15 and then we're going to go to chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I'm guessing there's a couple of primary reactions to hearing um, those verses read in this room. Some of you just got really excited and think the Bible has now given you permission to just party all of the time and just kind of do whatever you want. And first off, we'll just say, just before you think that, this passage is not saying that you should not work, that you should get drunk, and that you should waste all your money on expensive clothes. Please hear me. That is not, that is not what God's word is saying here. That is what our world would say to do. And we've seen that those things, pursuing those things, just leads us to anxiety, depression, and emptiness. But I'm guessing for most of you, or at least for a lot of you, this passage probably makes you feel kind of uncomfortable and confused, which brings to mind this great satirical John Piper article uh, story about John Piper from a few years ago where he had to publicly repent after accidentally fist pumping one time when the Vikings made it into the playoffs because he, and saying he was deeply sorry for showing the slightest pleasure out of watching a sport and then immediately began rereading his own book, When I Don't Desire God which I loved. <laughs> if you don't know John Piper, he's kind of famous for saying that you're not really supposed to have a lot of fun, and he's really, very, very intense and very serious, um, and there's been a lot of jokes at his expense about any time that he you know, appears to do anything fun. Another one joked about someone caught him taking seashells from the beach and said he wasn't being serious about his walk with the Lord because he was wasting his time with a hobby. <laughs> so if you hear this passage, though, and it makes you kind of uncomfortable, I, I, I just want you to know you're not alone. I did kind of a, a fun thing just out of curiosity and looked at a ton of different commentaries on this passage. And it was like I was talking to all of these extremely uncomfortable biblical experts who didn't want to just say what the words of this passage said and had to explain why we're not supposed to drink too much or why we should be serious about work. Like they didn't want to say anything in the passage because it kind of goes against the grain of what Christianity in America often has taught, what the church talks about. And why is that? Because Christians have historically taken the things that God has given to us, the good things, and have made them bad things for fear that people would go too far. Many Christians, maybe many of you in this room, grew up in fear of sex and intimacy because the purity movement used scare tactics about getting pregnant and ruining your life to tell you not to have sex. But instead of talking about the way the Bible talks about sex, often what was left out is what God's intention was for sex, that it wasn't just for procreation. It was also for marital connection and pleasure, and it's supposed to be fun. In the same way with food and drink, raw and prepared foods, fresh and fermented drinks, they're part of God's beautiful creation. 
But for fear of drunkenness, historically, religious people have often condemned alcohol 100% as evil, saying that no one should ever partake of it in any way, in any form or fashion, because it's, it's evil and it's gonna destroy your life. But that's just not biblical. Drunkenness and alcoholism are sinful and are a serious problem, but drinking in moderation is not. Jesus himself made the best wine at a wedding, and everyone wanted to know where it came from. You know, I think food, though, is the one on this list that I would say has gone the other way. We don't talk about food. We don't talk about gluttony at all in church or in our world, for that matter of fact, because the cultural fears of body shaming people and the body positivity movement has led us to believe that you can't touch this topic, that people should be able to eat whatever they want and however much they want. But scripture speaks pretty plainly on this topic. And we're going to look at a couple passages here. Proverbs 23, 20 and 21 says, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them in rags. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And lastly, Titus 1, 12 and 13 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Excess is a real problem in our world. And there is a lot of evil there and vanity and sin when we overindulge ourselves. And we need to call that out, as God's words here says, and repent where we've done that. I know myself, I'm doing, I'm doing a weight loss thing I've been doing for about five years, and I feel convicted where the way I look at food is often not with this gratitude to the Lord, but it's, it's looking for comfort when you're stressed. It's looking to, to enjoy and pursue and almost worship something that can bring you pleasure in an unhealthy way, not in a godly way. I myself, I want to repent of that. I want to redeem the way I look at food and the way I take care of myself in a way that's, that's honoring to God and that doesn't selfishly use the things he made for what I think they should be used for. So if we look at this passage, it gives us a couple quick outputs here. If you're married, enjoy your spouse. This is a good thing. It's not shameful. It's actually God's intention and his good design for your sexual desires to be fulfilled in your marriage. Instead of binge eating, drinking to get drunk, or overindulging in life and wastefully spending, enjoy the things that God has made for you to enjoy, what he's given to you. As it says, eat good food with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, because God has already approved that you do. And then verse 10 addresses our work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Now, if you don't know the word Sheol, just to kind of briefly cover it, it's the word that's often used in the Old Testament to describe the place of death, the place of darkness. And it's this idea that there is a permanence to death and an inescapable finality after, and you can't take things with you, which is why it says you can't take work or thought or knowledge that these things will not be brought with you. The preacher here tells us that whatever we do, to do it with all your might. So don't be lazy with your work, but also recognize that your work is not who you are. Don't make it an idol. Instead, do everything that God has placed before you with a joyful heart, with intention, and with enthusiasm. So I'm guessing most of us, we look at this here, we either shamefully struggle with overindulgence, 
Or in some ways, we might become those self-righteous people who religiously abstain from things God has not asked us to and then judge people who don't. Either way, this is sinful. Sin has led us to distort God's design for our selfish enjoyment. But there is another way. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, and it sounds like something that you'd hear at a prosperity gospel church, but God is saying in this passage, he wants you to enjoy your life. Despite the powers that be, despite the injustice around you, despite the sting of loss and the, the looming realities of death, with all of those things in mind, God doesn't want you to live this lowly, just down-in-the-dumps, discouraged life. He wants you to enjoy the life he has given to you to enjoy. We can't control our health. We can't control or count the number of our days. The war of life, as it were, is never-ending. There's no utopia. There's no magic answer to the problems of, of life and the problems of humanity that we're going to find some wonderful answer and have a wonderful, happy experience in this world. The world would tell you with all of that in mind to just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. But God's wisdom tells us this, enjoy what I have given you to enjoy because I want you to make the best of your time on earth. I want you to enjoy life and to work hard. We really have three imperatives in this passage. Enjoy good food and drink. If you're married, enjoy your spouse. And then three, whatever you do, do it with all your might. These are some simple things. This isn't complicated, really, but it brings great joy to us because it's not about how much you have or how much you don't have. The simple joys of good food and good drink in moderation, they're so good. God made flavors that taste good to us. He made us to enjoy things. He made our taste buds to enjoy things. If he didn't care about that, then he would have just made us all drink you know, some type of soylent thing and we wouldn't have any, any flavor, taste buds in our mouth and it wouldn't make a difference. We would just be eating purely for calories. But that's not the case. God made you and designed you beautifully to enjoy good food and good drink. And there's a way to do that that's actually honoring to him because it's honoring how he made you and his design for your life. Rather than being lazy at work, looking for just the minimal amount of effort that you can put forward and being frustrated and complaining and, and not enjoying it at all, or on the other end, being a workaholic who can't get away from work and makes that who you are, there is a new way. There's an opportunity that God is inviting you into where you do work hard and you're creative and you put your, your effort and enthusiasm into your work, but you do it in, a, in such a way that honors him, that trusts him with the paycheck that trusts him with the future, with whether or not you'll get promoted or not, or whether or not you even stay where you are. There's a, there's a peace that you can have when you do everything in your life with all your might, surrendered to the God who ultimately has given that to you to do, and trusting him with whatever the future is going to hold. So first this morning, we saw that wise people choose patience over control and fear of God over fear of man. And now we see that wise people find joy and contentment in the face of death. Well, if you aren't a Christian and you're hearing all of this this morning, you're watching online or outside, it's my prayer that you hear hope in this passage. I know there's a lot of discouraging topics that I've, I've talked about this morning. There's a lot of heavy things in God's word here. But amidst chaos and war and suffering and hurt and injustice, there is a better way than just trying to get yours in life and avoid pain and get as much stuff as you possibly can. Because you know, as well as any of us, we all know that that plan doesn't work. It falls apart so quickly. God has invited you into a different way of living, 
one where your hope and your joy, they're not ultimately in your circumstances and they're not in what you can control. Instead, he's inviting you to put your faith in him, to fear him over man, the one who made all, the one who created everything, the one who is sovereign and in control over everything. That's why Jesus died for you because we all fail over and over at actually doing that and we can't do this life on our own. I'm inviting you this morning to consider following him and leaving the rat race behind, the comparison game on social media, and this endless pursuit of trying to control your life and find some sort of pleasure to make yourself feel better, to surrender that to Jesus and follow him. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, how are you dealing with the realities of brokenness and death in your life and in this world? Do you find yourself fearing this world, fearing man, more than you actually fear and worship God? Are you trying to control your life and chase after selfish enjoyment? Or do you find yourself in a place where you're patiently trusting God and you're trying to, with contentment, enjoy what he's given to you with gratitude? You know, sometimes when we talk about application in God's word and we look at scriptures and we have, you have a sermon that you hear, we have application at the end, I think one of the hardest things for us is to take it and to make it something that is mental and theological and philosophical and something we would say, yes, I agree with that, I see that's true, for that to drip down to our hearts and actually affect the way we live, the way, what we actually believe, what causes us to do what we do. So where do you need to confess and repent this morning? Maybe you try to control everything in life. Maybe you are a plan maker who's constantly trying to project out the future your savings and your investment strategies and all your contingency plans, your career goals, whatever it might be. Maybe you're making plans apart from God and, and you're angry or you're hurt or you're devastated because things are not going your way or have not gone your way. Maybe you're a glutton or a drunkard as much as none of us would ever want to use those words to describe ourselves. Maybe you use food, drink, or sex to medicate yourself, to deal with fear and stress and you overindulge in things to compensate for the fact that life is difficult. Maybe you use work to build your ego or to fill your pocketbook with cash. Or you're lazy and you don't work as unto the Lord and you're ungrateful that you even have a job that God's given to you. Now I want to give us a moment to actually prayerfully consider these things where we need to repent and confess. Because if we just sit here and we hear all of this, myself included, and we just say, hoorah, that's true, God's word says that, but we don't actually take any action. We don't respond both by confessing those things and repenting, which just means we turn from that and we ask God to help us obey instead of doing the things we normally do, then it's not really that helpful just to hear another sermon and another chunk of God's word if it doesn't actually impact your heart and your life. And God wants that for us. And so I just want to give us all a little bit of time to, to just do some business with the Lord, to confess where you, where you need to confess and to repent, to ask him to help you to walk in obedience. So I'm just going to give us a little bit of time to do that and then we'll close in prayer.
Father, we thank you that the gospel is our answer to brokenness and meaninglessness in life. That your gospel is what allows us to actually recover and pursue your wise design in life. God, help us to relinquish our control. Help us to fear you more than we fear this world. And God, when, when brokenness surrounds us, when the reality of death causes us grief or fear and, and concern of our, our well-being or the well-being of those we care about, would you help us to trust your plans? Because we can't know them. We, we, all we are left to do is either to abandon you or choose to trust you. Father, would you help us to stop chasing this life the world would tell us that we need, a life that we think we, that we need, a life that we want. Help us to actually enjoy the life that you designed for us, the portion you've given to us, the work that we have, the provision you've provided, that we would enjoy the good things of this life and that you have created and your beautiful creation. We would do that with contentment, with peace, patiently trusting in who you are and what you're doing, Lord. And we thank you that there is grace where some of us in this room may feel shame or guilt. We may feel knocked down, realizing that we failed in some way. God, we thank you that you always give us more grace, that your mercy is an unending well for us, and that we, we have not lost favor with you when we sin, nor can we gain it by trying to be better people. You, you have just invited us to follow you because you know it's better. You know that we will find real joy and real contentment when we actually pursue you and worship you and obey you, and you want that for us, Lord. Help us to be a people who pursue you over the things of this world first, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.